At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. I want to go into the Word of God today because our time is limited and the promise that we have is absolutely rich today. Today we get a chance to conclude our study on the Apostles' Creed, and it's always bittersweet when we are wrapping up one study, but it's also exciting to know where where we're going. We, We got some great things that we're about to get ready to dive into, but I do want to acknowledge and invite you back next week is Mother's Day. All the moms, let's give them a big, big hand. Uh, All the moms. Now, here's what you want to do. You want to make sure you're here. My message next week, and I can't wait to preach on this, is how God uses women, godly women, to advance his mission. It's going to be a powerful time in the Lord. But then we got photo booths and flowers and all these wonderful things. And so, So make your kids dress up even if they don't want to dress up. God has given you as a mom the spiritual gift of guilting us. And so use that spiritual gift and get them to come to church. It's going to be a great time. Please make sure you're here with us next week. But as we said, we've been studying this this, um, old ancient statement of faith. And I thank God uh, for Abe Phillip. How many thank God for Abe Phillip? How many thank God for Steve Zarelli? Uh, They've been teaching along with me through this uh, statement of faith. And I've said to you, if you've been a part of this series, that a creed is just a summary of what Scripture teaches about the essential truths that Christians should believe. And so a creed is only as valuable as its alignment with the Word of God. But this particular uh, creed or statement of faith dates back to the second century. It's built off of the teachings of the apostles and as Dr. Al Mohler, who wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed, describes it. He says the Apostles' Creed is a treasure, and I and I agree with him. I think that the efficiency and the effectiveness and the power of this creed is why it's endured throughout the generations and being able to, again, very efficiently just describe the essential truths that Christians are called to believe. But what a creed does at its best is two things. The first thing that a creed does is it confronts us. It confronts us with some of the big questions about about life. Questions like, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about salvation? What do you believe about the church? Hopefully you've been processing some of these questions. What do I believe about these things? I don't want to just float through life without thinking deeply about the most important things, being amused to death and never really thinking deeply about the things that matter most, majoring in the minors while the most important things are going neglected. I hope that's not the story of your life, and I certainly don't want that to be the story of of my life. So the creeds confront us to think deeply, but then it invites us to study. 
to study scripture so that we can have a rock solid understanding of what God has to say. So beyond our opinion, because our opinions are gonna be as varied as we are, do we have a higher moral authority on these issues? And what the creed says is yes, there is a higher moral authority. There is a moral lawgiver. His name is, 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 is God, Yahweh, as scriptures describe him. Uh, and, and, and he has given us his word on these things. Well, with that being said, today we're gonna confront one of life's greatest questions. And that is, what do you believe about death? What do you believe about death? That's a very heavy topic. There's some kids in the room. I promise you, I'm going to handle it tactfully, but I will say this. It's not just kids that struggle with discussing this topic. Uh, it's adults as well. I told you before I was a pastor. I was in the financial services industry and in addition in investing money for people. I also had to talk to them about life insurance. What a great conversation. Very few people want to talk about it, but what you believe about death matters, and it matters immensely. I will say this, you need to determine what you believe about death because what you believe about death will determine how you live life. If like many secular humanists or atheists or agnostics, uh, you believe that there's nothing beyond the grave, then you probably fall into that old classical line of thinking that you, you're born, you live, you suffer, you die, and that's it. And, and if that's the way your mind is shaped, then what, what room is there for meaning? What room is there for significance? What room is there for morality? Why would any of it matter? What you're left to do by default, if you follow that line of thinking out logically, is to become a nihilist, a, a person who says nothing really matters. But if like me, like those who put their faith and trust in Christ, you believe that there is much after the grave because Jesus rose from the grave and conquered the grave and offers to us the same resurrecting power that he has, then there is reason to have hope. There is much meaning in life, much significance. There's a reason why our living matters, and that reason is summed up in the resurrection of Jesus. Christ. Amen? And so I want to read, I want to read this, uh, this, this creed, and you can read along with us. If you have kept your card, kudos to you. You win a star. You get a star for keeping your card. We have extra cards where we have printed these if you happen to have misplaced them. But I do want to read, and you can read along silently or aloud with me. It simply says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin. And here's the line that we're going to study today. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting Amen. I love that those who shaped and formed this statement of faith said, 
how do we conclude this? How do we wrap this up? And they determined, which is right in light and in view of Scripture, that there is no way we can end this creed without confronting what the New Testament describes as the last enemy of man. What is the last enemy that has to be defeated, that was defeated on the cross of Christ? That last enemy is death. And as the 16th century British poet George Herbert said, the death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has transformed death into a gardener. Death used to be something that we feared because it meant termination, but now in light of Christ, death is used to cultivate within us the spiritual fruit of hope in God. You know, in a few short days, I've been invited to come and speak at one of our public high schools, local public high schools. There's a comparative religion class that have been looking at the various world religions, and they've asked me to come in, and can you give a talk about what makes Protestant Christianity unique. Now, they've already heard from an, an imam. They've already heard from a rabbi. They've heard from a priest. And so now Chris Brooks comes in. And I've been thinking about like five different unique aspects of Christianity that distinguishes it from other world religions, but it can all be summed up in one word. And the one powerful word that makes Christianity so unique is resurrection. Paul says this in his longest chapter on the resurrection, his longest chapter on this topic, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if there is no resurrection, we are to be most pitied among people because we believed in vain. But as a great Aristotle, the Western philosopher once said that if the resurrection is true, everything else is but a footnote. If the resurrection of the Son of God actually happened, then everything else in life is but a footnote. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we have no reason to listen to the words of Jesus. But if he did as he said, as Scripture says, raised from the grave, not only should we listen to him, but we should not only desire to know him, but we should dedicate our lives to making him known to the rest of the world. But what Scripture never does, what it never does is simply give us cold, rote information just so we can fill up our notebooks so that we can have fun facts at parties. Scripture doesn't invite us to be great debaters, for us to be able to go around and win arguments. How many love winning arguments? This is not the overall prevailing purpose of the resurrection. Paul writes to give right understanding on the resurrection so that we can have right hope. Because here's what Paul knows, is that every single one of us are going to be confronted with death. Every one of us. Maybe it comes when a loved one who you cherish deeply passes away. Maybe it comes when your mom or your dad passes away, or maybe it comes when a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife that you spent a lifetime building memories with, and then one day they're, they're no longer here, and you're confronted with death, and you have to ask yourself, what do I believe happens at death and after death? Or, or maybe it's your own 
finality of life that you're dealing with. You know, it's been said that when we're young, death feels like it is far behind our backs and we are way ahead of it. But as we get older, death stares at us face to face. And maybe after a doctor's diagnosis or um, as you go through the aging process, you now feel the breath of death confronting you. And this becomes all too real. This is why the Apostle Paul writes 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to invite you to join me there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at uh, five famous verses, verses 13 through 18. Paul spent about a month, maybe three weeks, according to the book of Acts, in a city called Thessalonica, a great Roman city there. After he was done sharing the gospel and proclaiming the resurrection, Scripture says many Greeks and Jews believed, and uh, a church was born. Uh, But because he was there for only a short time, there were a lot of questions that the church had over time. And so he writes them two letters to answer some of their prevailing questions. And one of their questions that they were dealing with is surrounded or wrapped up in what, what happens at death, what about the return of Christ, how does that impact this whole thing, and Paul wants to write to them about that, but here's what Paul wants them to understand, is that truth should change the way we live, that, that what he presents here should leave us with the question, how now shall I live in light of the resurrection? And there's, there's three things that should happen in light of our awareness of the resurrection. The first he gives us is that we should grieve with hope. Look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed. Many translations translate that word uninformed as ignorant. We do not want you to be uninformed, uneducated, or ignorant brothers about uh, those who are asleep. So here we're talking about death. That you may not grieve as others who do not have, or, or who, I'm sorry, others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, I'm I'm, I'm writing to you because I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to be very, very clear. And what does he want them to be clear about? About those who have fallen asleep, those who are dead, or what happens at death and after death. And, And here's what he says. He says, and the practical implication of this is that it should change the way you grieve. Now, I want to debunk one false understanding of this that has been unfortunately popularized, and that is that this is somehow a prohibition against grieving at all. That if you are a Christian, you don't grieve when someone dies. That is not what Paul is saying at all. As a matter of fact, he leaves enormous space for grief. He leaves the door open for grief. One of the most important and shortest verses in the Bible is Jesus standing at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And it says that Jesus wept. We grieve. We grieve over the reality that someone that we loved deeply will no longer be by our side or that voice on the other side of the phone 
or that good night at the end of the night or that good morning at the beginning of the morning or that support system when we're going through the trials of life. It's been said that grief is the final act of love that we give to someone we deeply cherish. That grief is the final act of love that we give to someone whom we deeply cherish. We grieve. We grieve if they've gone through a sickness, the brokenness of the body, and the pain that they had to endure as they approached the finish line. We grieve. And it's okay. And the sad reality is that either formally or informally, directly or indirectly, many of us have suppressed grief, much to the harm of our own soul. We have been taught a Timex theology that we take a licking and just keep on ticking. We pretend as if our hearts don't break, but Jesus wept and he invites us to weep. And there's something profound in that whole thing that he does not just join us on the mountaintops of our lives. He is not simply asking for invitation into our successful moments. He is not simply asking to be invited to our graduations or our promotion parties or our successful moments. But David puts it this way, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because even there you You are with me. And when we really come to know this Jesus, what we know to be true about him is that he is just as faithful, just as present in sorrow as he is in success. And this is one of the reasons why I love him. Because he is not a God that abandons me in the midst of my tears and in the midst of my brokenness, but he comes alongside of me. But what does he do when he comes there with me in my valley, in the shadow of death? Is he whispers his truth into my ear and he reminds me that though you may grieve, you don't grieve like the atheist. You don't grieve like the humanist. You don't grieve like the agnostic. You don't grieve like those who have no hope, but you grieve in light of the promise of the resurrection, that death is no longer an executioner, that death is no longer a period, that death is no longer the ravenous dog on the other side of the grave, but death is a defeated foe. He is defanged it, and standing on the other side of the grave is the loving arm of a welcoming Savior. Praise God to him be the glory. There is also something else that is deeply here and that is the promise of the resurrection. That there is a payoff for our faith. We live in a period that theologians call the in-between, the already but not yet. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated by the coming of the king, but yet all of the promises have not been fully actualized. But there is a day that's coming where we will get the greatest and grandest payoff for our faith in him, and that is, dear friends, resurrection is coming. Resurrection is coming where we will be raised from the grave if we have died or we will be called up to meet with him. Resurrection is our portion. Now listen, I talked to you weeks ago about his resurrection, the fact that he got up from the grave. But the same power, 
that rose Jesus from the grave resides in you and I, and that same power is going to raise up us up from the grave as well. When we studied, when we studied a few months ago, First Peter, when we got to First Peter chapter one, verse number three, we read these words: "But you and I have been born again to a living hope, that we are hopeful people. But that hope." is connected to a day. And what is that day? The day of his return. Verse number 13 and 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that our hope is based on the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes back, when he is revealed. When he comes back, he will raise up the dead and we will experience the full actualization of our faith. And friends, if you have a loved one who has preceded you in death, here's the thing I want you to understand, is that they will be raised again. If you have someone who you care for deeply who has died, here's the hope that we have who have experienced that, that they are alive in Christ. Dwight L. Moody, one of my favorite evangelists, says this, and I want to read this. I love the way he worded this. He says, the day will come when you will read that Dwight L. Moody has died. When that day comes and you read those words, don't believe a word of it, because on that day I shall be more alive than ever. I love that. The day is going to come where you will read that Chris Brooks has died. But when you read those words, don't believe a word of it because Jesus has conquered death. And how many praise God that he has given us the promise of the resurrection and we will be more alive than ever before. And aren't you glad on the way that Jesus speaks of death? Never calling it by its proper name. But as a sign of a triumphant hero, he refers to it affectionately as sleep. He says, those who are asleep. I love that. The apostles pick up on this. That, that the best way to look at death is nothing different than a sweet and temporal sleep. But when you sleep, you anticipate, anticipate that on the other side of that sleep, you're going to do what? Oh, uh, you're quiet on me, church. When you sleep, you anticipate you're going to do what? All right, that wasn't a trick question. That's the right answer. And when you die, you should anticipate that one day you're going to get up. Just like you wake up, you're going to get up. Death does not have you in its grip. Jesus has loosened the grip of death, and he has promised us resurrection. Praise God, that is the payoff. Now, many people... I hate going to work on Monday morning. Now, you don't have to raise your hand. I've done the survey. It's empirical. I got the data on it, right? But we go to work on Monday because of the payoff that we call compensation. Payday is coming. Many students don't like studying. My daughter, who's very social, had a lot of activities this weekend, but her and dad worked out an agreement that you go to those activities after your homework is done or there's no activities. Can I get an amen from a mom or a dad, right? So that was the agreement. Surprise, surprise, homework got done. But here's the thing. 
Why do you sacrifice in studying? Because there's a payoff that's coming that we call graduation. The payoff of labor or work is compensation. The payoff of studying and education is graduation. What's the payoff of our faith in Jesus Christ? It is resurrection. You may not want to see death, but on the other side of death, there is a payoff, a promise, and the promise is, if you have put your faith and trust in him, that just as he lives, you will live as well. He will raise you up so that you can reign with him. So we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Every funeral should not primarily be about the person who is in the casket, but about the promise after the casket. It should be focused on the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we read scripture after scripture, sing song after song, and declare to one another the promise that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at his return, we shall all be changed and we shall be caught up and meet him in the air. And so then we go on. And the second implication that he gives us of this on how we should live is we should anticipate the return of Christ. Pick up this passage in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of a trumpet and with the sound of the trump of God, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will raise, rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Praise God. He is helping them to understand that what he is giving them is not mere opinion of men. You know, typically when death happens, we get a lot of cliches, a lot of people who come to us to say things that they have formed in their minds that sometimes are well-intentioned, but oftentimes are empty with power. But Paul says, this isn't some machination or ideation of my own mind. But look at verse number 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is a promise from God himself. This is a promise from the creator of heaven and earth. If it is simply a promise from a person, then you have reason to doubt a promise is only as powerful as a promise giver. And so Paul says, this promise is worthy of your full trust and confidence because the giver of the promise is none other than the Lord himself. And what has he promised? He's promised that he's coming back again. And we should anticipate the fact that he is coming back again. And friends, when Jesus comes back again, it will be no small moment. Now, while there is debate on the sequencing of these events, what all Christians do agree on is that Jesus is coming back again. But I want you to see the noise of the moment, if you will. Look at verse number 16. He's coming back again with the cry 
cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trump of God. This is one of the noisiest verses in all of scripture. And it is to remind us that when he comes back, it's going to be a full cinematic experience. Now, yesterday I took my boys to see an Avengers movie. They loved it. I got a great nap. Everybody was happy on the other side of it, right? And so we go to see this Avengers movie, but what's amazing about it is it's not only visually stunning, but we all know that moment when it looks like the villain is winning, but then the hero comes in to triumph over the moment. That is not a quiet moment. Those who design those movies build it up musically, build it up with volume, build it up with noise, and the sound in the theater was so strong that I felt my seat rumbling. Well, think about the moment when our hero comes back and conquers death finally, cracking the midnight sky. It's going to be no quiet moment. The Lord himself will cry, I am king. Then the archangel Michael will blow the trumpet of God, and there will be a command, and the graves will open up, and those who have trusted in him, their bodies that have been decomposed and spread across the earth will be through a miracle process, brought back together again, but then they will shed mortality and put on immortality, and they will then go up to be with the Lord, and we who are left still here alive will be caught up in the air, and it's going to be a big, glorious, and grand family reunion. And yes, I'm excited, because I got some folks I can't wait to see, and maybe you do too. Maybe there's a mom that you can't wait to see who lived her life trusting Jesus. Maybe there's a dad that you can't wait to see whose prayers still ring loud in your ear. Maybe there is a son or daughter that you can't wait to embrace again. Maybe there's a friend that you can't wait to party with one more time. And here's what Jesus was doing through Paul. The Spirit of God inspiring him to write, he wanted them to know that those who preceded us in death weren't going to be left out of this promise. One of the things that the Thessalonican Christians were struggling with was this, is if people died before the return of Christ, do they miss out on this? And he says, no. He says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's as if he says, there's one more promise for those who trusted me to the very end of their life. They get to go first in this resurrection. And then we'll get caught up to meet with them and be with them forever and ever and ever. God is going to resurrect our loved ones and then clothe them in immortality. And there will be no more pain. And there will be no more treatments. There will be no more needles. And there will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. There will be joy from everlasting to everlasting as we all celebrate in the triumph of the Lamb and the joy that we have in the resurrection.
together celebrating that Jesus Christ has conquered death, hell, and the grave, and that the wisdom of God, which transcends our understanding, has prevailed over his foes, and redemption has been secured on our behalf. Undeserving because of our sins, but recipients of a grace that allows us to share in this glorious salvation. All other religions are predicated on us trying to earn our way to God. But ours is a faith that says, you can't, but don't worry, he came. And he lived a sinless life. And he died on that cross. But death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't keep a good man down. He rose on that third day with all power in his hands. And he says that just as I have, you shall also because I love you. And so then he closes with verse number 18. And he says, yes, you should grieve with hope. Yes, you should anticipate Christ's return. But thirdly, you should comfort one another. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. With what words? I love this. He says, listen. He says, don't just keep this in your head. Don't just keep this bottled up. But your charge, your responsibility is as often as you can encourage one another with the words or the promise that resurrection is coming. This fallen world will make death all too common. We're going to bump up against death all too frequently. The death of those that we know, the death of those that maybe we don't know through tragedy, through sickness, through disease, through famine, will cut on our TV and day after day after day be bombarded with death. And there are times, every one of us, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, where your hope tank gets low. But what do you do when your hope tank gets low? You make another hope deposit. But you don't make a deposit based off of fragile cliches that are humanistic in nature, but no, he says, comfort one another, not with your words, but with these words. As a matter of fact, the best thing that any one of us can do for another believer is when our hope tank gets low, is to pick up scripture and say, let's go back to the text again. Let's go back to the word of God again, and let's read that he is coming back. He's going to have a loud cry. There's going to be an archangel's trumpet. There's going to be the sound of the Lord. And those who are dead in Christ will rise first. And we who remain will be caught up to meet them in the air. Anybody hope tank getting filled up a little bit? And then when it gets a little bit low, make another deposit again and again and again until hope overcomes despair and triumphs because we are a people of hope. And all of this is because God has conquered every one of his foes. And he invites us to join him in this victory that we don't have to be on the outside living without hope, walking through life with despair. I don't know how I would make it through this life if it wasn't for Jesus. All the brokenness. But you don't have to live in shame or in the prison of guilt or fear or hopelessness. 
but you can be made alive again with the hope of Jesus Christ, knowing that heaven is our home, that he's with us in this life, and he promises that he will be with us in life to come. So what is our hope in life and death? It is Christ alone, but Christ is enough. So let's rejoice. Let's sing hallelujah because our king has won and we get a chance to reign with him. And how many long for that day of his return? How many are looking forward to that? Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me all over this church as we close in worship, as we acknowledge his goodness and his grace. And today I want you to consider what do I believe about death? Do I have a promised hope? And if you'd like to explore more of the Christian faith or you'd like to pray, I'll be here, so will others to pray with you. But don't leave without the everlasting hope that is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today the words of your truth would so transform our heart that we who have been grieving would not grieve like the world, but we would rejoice. And that those who are far from you would know your nearness and that today would be a day of salvation and that we would all look forward to what those credo writers promised us from your word, the day of resurrection. Jesus, you are the resurrection and we thank you for the promise of heaven in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.